Welcome to the Uncut Podcast. I'm Pastor Luke. And I'm Pastor Kate. And this is the Uncut Podcast, where we have honest, uncut conversations about faith, life, and ministry. Uh, we're sitting down this afternoon to pick up the conversation that we were having um, last week in our last episode. Um, we kind of um, were kicking around kind of this question of what are what's the important theological topics, ideas, uh, beliefs that have kind of been lost or have kind of been maybe somehow have not been sitting as important or clearly mm-hmm. understood and are uh, impacting like church life, Christian life, mm-hmm. all of these things. Uh, and we talked about a lot. Um, we did. We talked about particularly forgiveness. Significant mm-hmm. part of the episode was talking about, um, you know, uh, this refusal to forgive, kind of a denying or an ignoring of some of Christ's teachings on the importance of it. Um, and then we started to kind of get into uh, teachings on divorce. Um, oh, yeah, that's we were, right. We were kind of wading into some of those waters a little bit, mm-hmm. um, kind of wrestling with that question of like, you know, when when people ask just, you know, what um, – I think you asked the question, like if anyone's ever asked you if, you know, they've, you know, should they get a divorce? Should they get a divorce? Yeah, that's right. Um, mm-hmm. We kind of talked through some of that. And so, um, yeah, I feel like it would be fair to pick up just about anywhere with this kind of stream of thought that we yeah. were kind of on. Well, it came from the whole thing. Didn't it come from a question that one, you and one of your friends were talking about? Yeah, it was a conversation a friend of mine we were having and – um, and funnily enough, the, the the topic of conversation that sparked the question was um, was I think around uh, the issue of divorce in like the modern church mm. and um, and how it's kind of become kind of this thing where we just kind of don't talk about it. Um, or he his impression of it is that like it's uh, it's so ubiquitous that it's just kind of glossed over in Christian theology. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were talking about some other things, but he was of, I don't want to, you know, overly speak for someone who's not here, but his, you know, his particular thing was, is like, he thinks that some of these problems had a root issue in um, bad theology surrounding sin. Mm, that's what it was. That's yeah. what it was. He, he particularly felt, um, you know, he takes takes problem with the well. All sins are equal in God's eyes, and so for some reason that can and does end up kind of equating to well. Then it just doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah. We don't take um, so seriously mm-hmm. that kind of. Um, uh, we we maybe make use that as a justification to make our sins less worse. Right. <laughs> Less worse. Yeah. Um, not as pertinent or awful. Yeah, it sometimes I think probably feels weird for people to 
hear someone else say or talk about or to think that they should have a pretty robust theology of sin. Mm-hmm. Because we, we generally think of theology as the things that are descriptive about pastors. God. Yeah. You know. Like theology proper? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or like the things of, the good things of God. Yeah. You know, like salvation and mm. um, the church, and but not about sin. Yeah. It, it actually reminds me that, um, that um, John... Wesley mm-hmm. thought that the doctrine of original sin mm-hmm. was the most verifiable of all Christian doctrines. It was like the most should be the most undisputed. Yeah. Like just baseline. Oh yeah. Well, of course sin is, is so extraordinarily pervasive right how demonstrable it is in human activity and human behavior um and so he felt like he actually had a really um a really deep theology of sin that he wrote on i would say he probably wrote less on sin than he did on grace because that's kind of what you know wesley was mostly known for is Grace, but it's probably what most pastors should be known for, but <laughs> right. Um, well, it's what we know most for, it's yeah. not really what everyone like his contemporaries knew him most for. He was kind of an interesting character, um, like denying communion to the fiance of his ex. Um, <laughs> oh <boy. laughs> uh, but anyway, um, you know, to certainly you begin to draw it's difficult to draw there is a sense in where trinitarian theology begins to unravel if you don't have a good strong theology of sin mm. like if you're not rooted and grounded in a theology of sin in whatever ways you want to talk about it, um, you begin to you be, you begin to run aground of the necessity of salvation. Hmm. Yeah, and of course, the necessity of salvation runs into the second person of the Trinity being Jesus, right. and then Jesus it, becomes a example, right? Well, and then the sending of the Holy Spirit for the empowerment of the church to go on mission to proclaim a message of forgiveness of sins if mm-hmm. there is no sin or if sin is yeah. weak, you know. So it does create some, I think, so a pretty significant theological domino effect. Yeah. Well, it's you, you, I, I, you know, uh, probably I don't know enough to make the strong. An overly strong statement, but it's probably fair to say that um, the mainline, main the the difficult the things that have been happening in mainline denominations that have gone significantly liberal in their direction, you could possibly even just pinpoint it just to what you just said a um, a lessening of sin of like 
original sin of its pervasiveness, uh, more permissiveness of 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 God and His um, view on what is and is not sin. Yeah, and then slowly that does unravel. Yeah, or at least the lessening of the pervasiveness of what what had like conservatively and historically been was seen as sin. Right. Yeah. Um, and I'll talk to you. I'm sorry. I'm leaning back like this because the the Lord is letting His glory shine in the room right now, <laughs> and I'm going to be a sweaty mess by the end if I don't lean back into the shade. Um, um, totally lost my train of thought there. Um, you know when you talk about like the modern denominations and their un their unraveling mm-hmm. um and how that might equate to their view of or not view of sin what is sin what isn't you know um it's interesting where that perspective might come from because the the denomination that I'm most familiar with obviously is United Methodism. It's what I came out of, Mm -hmm. which just had like a, some would call it just a colossal like unraveling and collapse. Schism. Schism, so to speak, which seemed abrupt and sudden. But I have colleagues, older colleagues, in fact, my mentor who has been retired for 10 years now, nine, 10 years, and did 40 years as an elder, mm-hmm. said that, you know, so essentially for the last 50 years, it was a big issue back when he started, you know, questions generally around human sexuality and yeah. homosexuality and um, all of that and whether, you know, homosexuality is permissible in Christian theology and Christian thought and biblical theology. Anyway, um, and so while there are many, many issues that the church, the United Methodist Church split over, um, that seemed to be the litmus test for individual conferences and congregations and even individual United Methodists was where do you stand on that issue? Yep. Which was really not even so much an issue about human sexuality as much as it was, or at least in my from my vantage point, a a issue or like where do you stand on the role of scripture in guiding the church? Mm. Like the role of biblical authority. Yeah. Do we take do we take uh what how do we read scripture and then how do we take scripture in its application and apply it to a modern view or understanding of the church? Because so let's say um you know, you will talk to progressive now they're just united methodists yeah you know progressive united methodists who will say who will stand firm on like homosexuality is not a sin Mm -hmm. and so no the church didn't unravel because of its allowance of sin the church unraveled because it failed to love Mm -hmm. or failed to to offer an affirming voice or there were those who, you know, took the way of judgment rather than the way of love and grace. And so you you have this sense then of even now 
like the church, it requires the church to define even what sin is. Right. What is sin an offense to? Yeah. If a sin is an offense, right? What is it an offense to? So. Right. Is it an offense? Is it just, is it non-existent? (laughs) Is it? Right. um, Yeah. So I, you know, I, I would, I think it's an interesting question to talk about, you know, whether the, a theology of sin as it exists in the church and what, mm-hmm. you know, a right or a wrong theology of it yeah. requires for us to. Yeah. Cause I, well, like there's this, um, I would, I would probably say that the most popular, because we're we're even wading into uh, morality a little bit, right? Um, and uh, probably the most common definition of morality that I know of is in modern society is do no harm, mm. right? Mm-hmm. As long you do you, as long as it doesn't interact with me, yeah. doesn't harm me, right? Um, which sounds really great, you know, just like, um, let people be people, let people do whatever they want, ever they want. Um, Hippocrates loves it. Right. Hippocrates. Hippocratic uh, oath. Right. right. Just, you know, take, you know, let people kind of do what they want to do. Um, and then they will, um, uh, that'll be fine. That's the, that's the greatest good. It's just in, in maximize individual freedom and the limit to individual freedom is when someone's individual freedom starts to harm another person. Mm. Right. Um, which is great, uh, on the level. Right. Um, and if you think about this and then you start looking around, you'll see this in play in a lot of way. People talk about what's right and wrong. Um, the problem is, is defining that line is a lot harder than it actually sounds like it is. Um, and also, it has to do with um, harm to who. Exactly. You have to be able to define who's the other that I'm infringing or harming. Right. Uh, well, and it doesn't always necessarily take into account the corollary effects of sin. No. So you talk about like, if you take a do no harm viewpoint to personal drug use. Right. You know, and you say, okay, do no you know what what does it matter if i do heroin right if i choose to do that and i'm not you know like trafficking large amounts of heroin you know why does it matter why does whether it yeah, yeah why, does why, it matter? why why should it matter to the cops or why should it matter to you a person who loves me or why should it matter over here thinking i think what it what it does um Maybe and I'm kind of just shooting from the hip here a little bit. I think we both are. Is, <laughs> yeah, is that um, it views sin as purely individualistic? Yeah, and not a not a scourge of humanity, but just a scourge of me. Yep. Um, which I think may, if you follow uh, a logical rabbit trail, may lead to being like, well, then there must be people who are less sinful than others, right? People who are just more 
morally or ethically good. Mm-hmm. Sin is individu- individualistic. Yeah. It can be escaped by an individual, mm-hmm. but just being more good, less bad than a person that I'm compared to. And so even that view begins to like disintegrate mm-hmm. theologically when you trace it, you know, at least in the way that we understand the scripture. So, yeah. Well, and then it, um, you know, the pl- place where this really start, well, one place where this conversation, you can see this being played out in like real time is the debate over abortion, mm. right? Of, well, my choice, my body doing no harm mm. unto I'm not doing harm to another because that's not another person. Yeah. That's where, that's where this comes into play. And all of a sudden you now have, we're in this giant society debate over trying to define well, who's, who's a person who's, a, who's the other that my freedom gets to or not to impinge upon. Mm-hmm. Um, and apparently the only thing you're not allowed to identify now these days is a fetus. Right. So I get fired up. I get really fired up about that topic. I, <laughs> I know it's been on our like possible topics to talk about yeah. since the beginning of the podcast. Is, right. Um, but maybe today is probably not the day to maybe not get, <laughs> <laughs> not the day to get it, into that. But it, it but it is an excellent case example for where and why utilitarianism and mm. um uh and this kind of moral philosophy of do no harm really struggles of who is the other um and if someone is you know less than right mm. like you you can like um there's like side note or well no things that i think people theology i think people really need a better understanding of is the image of god mm. and the reason i think so is because a lot of times a lot of the material i've interacted with over my course of study and time in theology has been a descriptor of usually they say well, the image of God, which is something that has been given in Scripture at the beginning of the Bible in Genesis, mm-hmm. God says, let us create mankind in our image. Um, and then he mates us. And so the question's always been, well, what is the image that we bear? Is it that we look like him? Well, no, we're physical. He's spirit, spiritual, right? Mm-hmm. So there must be something characteristic about us. Um, and then what normally happens is people study the attributes of God, and then they divide those up into two, his communicable attributes and his incommunicable attributes. Um, it's a fancy words way of saying the attributes that God shares, the attribute God, only God has, right? Mm-hmm. God shares some attributes with us, and then they list a bunch of things. And my problem with that, one, other than, like, it's fine, it's not a terrible thing, but I don't think it quite goes far enough mm-hmm. in in actually defining what is the image of God, because what it really ends up doing is it ends up leaving the image of God in a um, in a place of utility yep. and function. Yep. What he does, the economy of it, right? The yeah. economy of it, right? Yeah. So, like an example of this is God is creator, 
Well, God has communicated that attribute to humanity. We too create, right? Through procreation, Mm -hmm. creativeness, right? All of that, which at the end of the day are all things that we do. And so the question then is, well, let's, what if somebody who is unable to be creative, Mm -hmm. are they less the image of God? Mm -hmm. Uh, What if those who are mentally handicapped or physically handicapped uh, to a place in which uh, they are less able to express those things. Yep. Do they less bear the image of God? Right. And yep. if our theology of the image of God is only attributes, only things in which we do, then yes, that right. is, that's where that kind of falls short. Yeah. I very, very much uh, am very passionate about advocating the fact that like we need a theology of the image of God that holds to the fact that being human in its very self carries value and carries dignity of being in the image of God. Mm-hmm. That that there's some sort of spiritual, moral um, essence in which we carry as being human um, that sets us apart. Mm-hmm. And it is this, you know, undefinable st- divine spark, if you want to call it that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's a, that's a closer definition of what um, the image of God is then rather than these just kind of like yeah. communicable attributes. Can you think off the top of your head where you would see the, kind of like the departure of that really affect our theology, our life, our mm-hmm. world. Like, Well, I think it, it comes in like one, it's when we're talking about abortion. Mm-hmm. It's a significant place of mm-hmm. like, you know, uh, well, because, you know, what defines a – human uh another place where that comes into play would be um the uh forgiveness we were just talking about forgiveness Mm. but if someone is like well they're a monster they're somehow beyond yeah deserving of forgiveness well no right like when we come into a place of uh dignity of humankind of well, they've, they've, have they, has anyone, can someone lose the image of God? Mm. Um, and, and therefore be, you know, and therefore anything we do to them would be permissible. Permissible, yeah. And yeah. that comes into questions of like, I'm Cap- not going to. Capital punishment? Even. Capital punishment, yeah. uh, which is not going to pretend to answer that question here but um i got opinions on that i I do too um (laughs) but it's a um you know do we can't can we say that someone is no longer deserving of dignity right Mm -hmm. um you know the fact that we have things like the geneva convention Mm -hmm. which like dictates how humans need to be base level treated in some of the worst circumstances like acts of war and things like that um, does kind of hint towards this intrinsic intrinsic understanding that there there is a way that we ought to treat one another, even when 
we are at the most opposed odds that we possibly could be. Mm-hmm. Um, all of those things, I think, really start to play it. How we treat people who are um, disabled, mm-hmm. whether that's physically or mentally, um, that's a significant place of where that kind of begins to come into place. Um, so, yeah. Mm. Yeah, I do think that that's a good one. Mm-hmm. What else? Do you have any other examples of of like theological oh, things that you feel are missed? Yep. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Let's hear them. Um, so this is this is probably the big one that I've been thinking about the last. I mean, I think about it a lot, but I've been thinking about the last couple weeks fairly intensely. Um, is I kind of did define it as um, a more robust theology of suffering. So when I talk about like a theology of suffering, um, a lot of people will say, oh yeah, yeah, I know that when bad things happen, God is there with me and mm-hmm. through it. And that maybe God has something good that he might bring about it, mm-hmm. right? That's, if someone has a theology of suffering, that probably is a pretty good summary of what that theology ends up looking like. That's not bad, mm-hmm. but I think it's short. I think it falls short of a theology of suffering. Um, I think that not only uh, is God there when Suffer, or if suffering happens, but he will be there when it happens. I think this, we, our current context, we can kind of live in this kind of idea of like, I can avoid suffering. I can achieve happiness. And that's not true. Suffering is part of the human existence. You will experience pain, suffering, loss, hardship. It will look different for everybody, but you will experience it. Mm -hmm. It is one of the guarantees of existence. Um, And God is doing something in that when that happens. Mm -hmm. And, um, And even to go beyond just like the experience of suffering, um, Let's just kind of go to how we experience our personal life and growth in Christ. Um, I think that a large number of people believe that if I follow Jesus right, I should mostly be going from mountaintop to mountaintop with Jesus. Mm -hmm. If I'm praying, having faith, if I'm reading my Bible, if I'm singing worship songs, going to church on a weekly basis— I should always feel close to God, or God should always feel close to me. Faith should always feel dynamic, and I should always be kind of growing in this linear forward progression, mountaintop to mountaintop. Mm -hmm. I genuinely believe that probably the majority of Christians in America have that mindset, whether they think have acknowledged it explicitly or not. And that's just categorically wrong. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, you can be a hundred percent faithful to God Mm -hmm. and still lose it all Mm -hmm. and not experience God's presence. Mm -hmm. The book of Job is exhibit A, Mm -hmm. right? 
uh, Jesus, Jesus on the cross as <laughs> the exhibit cross. B. Yeah. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In the midst of suffering and pain. In the midst of suffering and, of suffering and, and pain. Yeah. I think that we need to have a bigger understanding that God grows us, yes, through his graces, his goodness, his gift, but then also grows us in a different way when we experience suffering or when we experience just his felt absence. I there's This is such a big topic, but in the history of the church, people have looked at what does it look like to be a Christian over a course of someone's life. And usually when you, there's like stages of growth. This is probably the best way to talk about it. Um, I cannot remember the, the the old dead guy that came up with this, but he has these four stages of love mm-hmm. in, in the Christian life. He's like, everyone starts out at loving myself um, for myself's sake. Right? That's hedonism. Mm-hmm. I do what makes me happy. Right? Love myself for myself's sake. The second stage is when you kind of meet God for the first time and you learn to love God for your own sake. Mm-hmm. I love God because following God um, is producing good fruit in me. Mm-hmm. I love the way that it's changing my life. Mm-hmm. I'm experiencing forgiveness. Usually, this is where, like, you know, this is where the new believer is. If you've ever see, met that new believer or if you remember your own new faith experience and you're just like, oh, like I love reading the Bible. I love worship. Why? Because it feels so good. Mm-hmm. It felt so dynamic, felt so alive. Everything was just about growing and growing and growing and uh, getting closer to Jesus. And then at some point that kind of stops. And our assumption is that we should actually always be feeling that way. Yep. But the reality is, is no, because if you continue to feel that way, you'll never move on to the next stage, which is loving God for God's, God's sake. sake. Yep. Loving God because of who he is, mm-hmm. not because of how he makes me feel. Mm-hmm. And the only way you go through that and move up to that next stage of Christian life, of development, is if God begins to withhold some of the pleasures that are motivating your faith in the first mm-hmm. place. And then you come to a decision point where you have to say, am I going to follow Jesus? Am I going to follow God because he's God? Because it's the right thing to do? Because I know that he's there? Because I know that he's got a call on my life? Or am I going to stop following God because it doesn't feel good anymore? Mm-hmm. Yep. And I think we have a crisis of people who hit that experience, which will happen yep. in your faith life, mm-hmm. and then they jump ship. Yeah. They deconstruct, they yep. jump ship, or they just kind of settle into this like yeah. kind of very quiet, settled faith. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that's a – I don't know exactly what to call that. I don't know if that's a theology of suffering mm-hmm. in some way yeah. or a theology of spiritual growth. Uh, maybe it's the two together, but it's this um, old church theologians would call consolation and desolation. Yeah. And, and I think we know what consolation feels like, mm-hmm. which is all the good stuff. And then when we when God brings desolation, where we feel the absence of things, mm-hmm. I think we interpret that as like, we've made a wrong step somewhere. We need to find a way to re-experience consolation. Yep. And we get stuck. Yeah.
And then what's, well, I mean, just for the sake of the fourth step, what's the fourth step? Oh, the fourth step. Uh, the final place is, I believe. Loving God for others sake. Is it, is it that? Or is it loving? I was just guessing. So I'm not sure. No, it's, it's loving, uh, loving self for God's sake, I think. Ah, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's this idea of being so united into the love of God. Yeah. Uh, and into God himself that yeah. you're able to um, see yourself rightly. Yeah. Not you, prideful or... You made that a part of the spiritual life class, right? Yeah, that was a pretty awesome. core. Pretty, I mean, the idea that I just expressed is a significant core idea yeah. in that. And it was in teaching that spiritual life class that I was like, this is like the... It began to kind of formulate in that I think this is a consolidation of what I've been thinking for many years is a place where people get stuck. Right. Cause I mean, I don't know what's your own experience in that. Have you ever, have you had to kind of wrestle through that? Oh yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, there have been times where there's this sense of like passion for life, mm-hmm. passion for calling, passion for, you know, you can call it passion for family, passion for ministry, passion yeah. for X, Y, or Z. And you feel like, wow, like this will never go away. Mm-hmm. This is who I am now. Yeah. Right. And then you, and then it does, and then you may, and sometimes it is true. Sometimes there are circumstantial things that cause a shift in the perception of a season of life. Yes. Um, and then sometimes it's just a removal of the thing that was keeping you in a comfortable position Mm -hmm. so that you may be forced essentially to find comfort in the Lord himself Yeah. rather than in the thing he's called you to or gifted you for Mm -hmm. or brought you to. Yeah. Right. And it's, I think it's in the perseverance through the valley or the dark night of the soul. Yeah. Or whatever analogy you want to use. It's person, it's walking. There's no, there's no getting around it. There, there's only one way through it. Yeah. And that's through it. Mm-hmm. You've got to walk through it. Yeah. Right. Um, you can't avoid it. And if you're going to grow and if you're going to come into the next season or the next step, right, um, you absolutely must persevere through it Mm -hmm. and um, really cling tightly, really cling tightly to, I I think it's good to cling tightly to the promise of God given to you in the original moment of passion. Oh, for sure. You know? you know, and to so to cling tightly both to the promise of God, but also primarily to the person, the person yeah. of God, the person of God. Yeah, yeah. That's I. It's I think of like the parable of the seeds or the soil, mm-hmm. right? And you've got the different you know seed gets planted, and you've got the oh. uh, gets plucked up right away. It grows up, but it gets kind of choked out by the thorns. Mm-hmm. I think that that's where in some ways the thorns come into play of mm. like, 
all growth was really great until suffering, concerns of this life. Uh, maybe it's now harder mm. and it kind of gets choked out. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think that's a huge one because mm-hmm. I think there's too many people. Uh, it, it can just manifest itself in so many ways of um, ev- everything from people kind of attributing suffering to lack of faith to, um, you know, just you, you've done something wrong, right? Mm-hmm. All the arguments that happened in Job, his friends come and accuse Job of like, well, you must have done something wrong or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, we still fight to get that theology out of the church today. Oh, yeah. Um, why is God mad at me? Why is God mad at me? Why is God punishing me? Yep. Um, and that's what Job's friends said to him. Yep. And you know that wasn't the wasn't the case. Uh-uh. Um, but then it also just I think it runs into a very anemic spirituality of like I need to find a way to keep myself motivated in my faith. Yeah. Um, let me find another book, another podcast, another preacher. This is this is where I think people who chronically change churches every couple of years. This is where I think they kind of might be stuck sometimes Mm -hmm. is getting to a place of like, yeah, this church was really good when I first got here, but now I'm just kind of feeling, I don't feel fed. Yeah. Now I know the people. Now I know the people and the the shininess is kind of worn off and uh, I'm starting to feel the same way I was feeling at my last church. Yeah. And maybe I should go look somewhere else. Yeah. Let's do let's do a podcast episode in the future mm-hmm. on right reasons to leave a church mm-hmm. and wrong reasons to leave a church. Yeah, yeah. Okay, we could definitely talk a lot about All that. Right. Mm-hmm. Make a note. We'll make a note. Make a note. Okay. Remind us about that if we don't. All right. Um. So yeah, I think that's a, I, and that plays into the way that we do church. I like we've been talking in the last couple of weeks. We've had some conversations about like what's appropriate inside of church Christian worship and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do, I do think that uh, not having this understanding of the Christian life leads us to a place where we're kind of like hyping hype church. Mm-hmm. Like we're bringing you to a concert experience to mm-hmm. give you a spiritual shot in the arm mm-hmm. on Sunday morning where you hear this fantastic TED talk, amazing worship, a great experience, high impact service. It gets you through the week, keeps you motivated and kind of feeling connected to Jesus because of an experience. But all it's doing is it's numbing over the deeper call through suffering, right. through uh, pain into knowing Christ in the absence yeah. of feeling uh, these good positive emotions yeah yeah or just yeah you know it's funny the primary this is kind of a diversion but kind of not the primary reason that people give me for wanting conduit or their church to have a midweek service Mm. is that sunday wears off too fast Uh uh-huh you know yeah that there's like a you know the spiritual inoculation that they got on Sunday, the hype. Yep. It's wearing off. Yeah. I have no control over it. Mm-hmm. You know, my personal discipleship to Jesus makes no difference. Yeah. 
Um, so can we have a Wednesday night service so that I can get fed up again? Not fed up again. <laughs> It's maybe a Freudian slip there. Right, right. Um, so I can get filled up again. Filled up again. Can't get my spiritual tank taken yeah, care so of. Yeah, so that by the time I'm coming down off the mountain again, it's Sunday morning. Yep. Um, and, yeah, it's a, you know, I don't, it's a very, it's a, I want to say this gently, but also firmly that mm-hmm. it's a, it's a very immature conception of the spiritual life. Yeah. Well, and because it makes it all about me. Yeah. How am I feeling? Yeah. How am I feeling? God so, is about making me feel, feel better. Yeah. And, and, and I don't, we don't, I don't think either of us say this condescendingly because we've mm-hmm. had to walk through it in our own ways. Oh my gosh. I walk through it now. Yep. You know, well, I don't ever want to feel the absence of the presence of the Lord mm-hmm. um, emotionally, mentally or intellectually, or just by experience now of walking with the Lord for a long time, I know he is there. Right. Um, so no, I don't like it. Right. But it, it is, it is what it is. And yes, I experience it too. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So, yeah. I think that's a big... I want to keep... For, for my own self, personally, I'm doing a lot of thinking around that. Cause yeah. It's a, a really important concept. Yeah. Agree. Good. Well, I think that that's a, a good bit of information for for the day. Yeah, probably. <laughs> <laughs> we traveled a distance there. Um well, I we appreciate you listening, as yeah. always. Um, encourage you to always ask questions either on our text line um, uh, or you can drop it in the comments. Uh, please like, share, subscribe um, in all the places that you listen to this. Appreciate you. And yeah. thanks for listening to the Uncut Podcast. Yep. We'll see you all next time.